Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to Series 7, Episode 1 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello. Welcome back. Welcome back to a brand new series. And wow, I've got such a good series for you. I'm so excited to share it. I think I've got maybe eight, eight of them already recorded. Well, actually, I'm doing one of them today and two of them tomorrow. But none of this matters. All you need to know is for the next 10 weeks, there will be a brand new episode every Monday of me interviewing someone interesting and inspiring and just someone that I want to sit down and chat to and hopefully you will want to have a listen to. As ever, I need to say thank you before we even begin the amount of you that come to my live shows or that come up and say hi to me when I'm out and about and tell me how much you love the podcast. It genuinely means the world to me. So thank you so, so much for that. It's also worth pointing out that I'm on tour. So if that's the kind of thing you'd be interested in, which I really hope it is, I am doing all over the country. So hopefully uh, you might be able to come along to one of that. I've just announced a second week at the Soho Theatre. So if you missed out on tickets the first round, there is another another week at the Soho Theatre if you're near London, uh, which is happening in the summer. All the details can be found at my website, susieruffle.com. And please come along. And if you come, please feel free to wait around afterwards and say hi. I love meeting people that enjoy this podcast. Okay. Oh, I've got such a good episode to start the series. I am so excited. I was so thrilled to talk to Skin from Skunk and Nancy. I think you can tell throughout the episode that I am having, I mean, a really big fan girl. I'd say one of the biggest of the whole series of shows, guys. It was... Um, yeah, I was so excited to talk to her. I, I think I sound like a very excited 15-year-old. But uh, maybe if you are a similar age to me or if you loved Skunk and Nancy or still love Skunk and Nancy, you will understand why. If you're not aware of them and of their work, the band Skunk and Nancy, then I highly recommend you get on your Spotify and pop it on. Well, I mean, after you've listened to it. Or you can have a brief pause now, listen to a couple of songs and then come back. Maybe you'll enjoy the podcast even more then. But as ever, before we begin, I will share a couple of listener emails. So here we go. Hi, Susie. Hope you're well. I've just listened to the podcast with Adam B. I know I'm a little behind, but it really resonated with me. I also watched his video on YouTube straight afterwards and a few tears were shed because it just sent me right back to when I came out to my parents and friends and that feeling of the weight being lifted. So I thought I'd share my story. I've only been out for a few years, having come out at 32. I'm now 35. But finally coming to terms with my sexuality and accepting myself for who I truly am is the best thing I've ever done. I got bullied a lot at school with people calling me gay and various other names around the same time. During year 11, 
while I was straight, in inverted commas, I was dating a girl and she kept joking that she looked like a man and that I was actually gay. She's happily married to her husband now and they have two fantastic kids. But throughout the rest of my school and college life, there was always a niggle in the back of my head that I kept coming back to. Perhaps they're right. But what if I am gay? I usually dismiss these, telling myself it was just a phase or that it was wrong. Fast forward a number of years after working for a while and then going to uni, having tried to take girls and failing miserably. It was on a night out with my best friend and his girlfriend, now wife, that everything changed. They sat me down and started asking me various questions. Who I would prefer to date between a male and a female celebrity, etc. I chose the female each time. But they eventually just told me that they knew I was gay and that there was absolutely nothing wrong with that. I went home that night and sat thinking about it for a little while longer, at which point I realised that they were right and that I was in fact gay. The following morning I called my parents and had a long discussion with them about it. They were amazing and supportive and I felt like a massive weight had been lifted as a result. Shortly after this, we went into lockdown and that's where I found your podcast and I'm so thankful for it. It made me realise there are so many others out there that have had similar stories and experiences and that I don't need to be scared about this new world. I was suddenly part of it. Once we were allowed back out, I was lucky enough to meet someone via an online dating app. We got together and shared stories and we've been together ever since. We got engaged in Disney World in August 2022 and moved into our first home together shortly afterwards. We're planning our wedding for 2024. I am happier now than I have ever been. And it's all thanks to my amazing friends and family for helping me come out. And to you for your amazing and supportive podcast. Please keep doing what you do. And hopefully my fiancé and I will be able to catch you at a live show in the near future. If you read this out on the pod, please feel free to use my name. Thank you so much. And that's from James. Oh, James, congratulations. You got engaged at Disney World. That's so cool. I love that. I'm so, so pleased for you and that you've got such brilliant friends and now a brilliant fiancé. And I'm really touched that the podcast means something to you. Thank you so much for reaching out and for letting me know that. And... If you come to a live show, please come and say hi. I would love to give you a squeeze. Congratulations. Okay, let's have one more. Dear Susie, I hope you're doing really well. I'm a new listener to your podcast and I'm obsessed already. I was recommended the podcast a while back by my friend, a friend who is actually now my wonderful girlfriend. We've been together for a while and I wanted to write because my girlfriend is a huge fan of yours and actually had a letter read out by you. For reference, she was the Kate Winslet-obsessed Christian, who you gave the funky pseudonym Patio Doors to. Well, since then, Patio Doors has come out to her parents and introduced me to them as her girlfriend. I keep telling her she needs to write in again and update you about all her queer achievements, but she's a rather busy lady. So I thought I'd take the opportunity to surprise her with this message. I'm so incredibly proud of how far she's come. She's overcome her fears surrounding how to navigate being both queer and a Christian. Even though I'm not religious, this morning I joined her at the weekly service at her church. As expected, I haven't converted overnight. Now I can really understand why God has played such an important role in her life. Looking back to when you read out her letter on the show, I was already a bit in love with her. And seeing how far she's come over these past few months has made me fall even deeper in love than I thought was possible. Sorry for this rambling love letter. In our relationship, we tend to write the longest cards and love notes. It took us about 10 minutes to read them when we exchanged Christmas cards. That's so lovely. And that's because there's no amount of words that can describe how much I love her and to thank her for showing me true and unconditional love. If you do read this out, not only would I be super grateful, but it also mean the world to me to know that my patio doors 
is listening. Although I'd like to remain anonymous, there is one person who knows exactly who I am. And to that person, I love you. Thank you so much for everything you do for the LGBTQ plus community. You are a legend. (laughs) And it's people like you that help everyone find the courage to live their lives with conviction, as cringe as that may sound, and find their true selves. Wishing you the very best and thanks for all that you do. That is a gorgeous letter that really uh, stopped me in my tracks, I have to say. I know exactly who you're talking about. Hello, Patio Doors. I remember you writing in. uh, That was in the last series, I believe, and I'm sure avid listeners of the podcast will know exactly who I'm talking about. I'm so pleased that you found your person, and I'm so pleased that you're learning to navigate being queer and Christian. For anyone that wants to hear more about faith uh, alongside being queer, I highly recommend you listen to uh, the... Second episode we ever did with Ruth Hunt. Uh, She speaks brilliantly about how her queerness and her faith are linked. So maybe you'd enjoy that. Right. Thank you so much for all the gorgeous emails I've got. I always want to receive more. You know that. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Please get in touch. I'll be needing lots and lots of emails for the next series. I've got 10 episodes, so I need 20 emails. So if you've been thinking about getting in touch, please do. A lot of the emails I seem to get, people don't want to share. They just want to share stuff with me, which is lovely. But it is amazing to also receive some emails from people that were willing to share their story. Okay, let's get on to this incredible episode with Skin. I'm so excited and I really hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Here we go. I am unbelievably excited for today's episode. A rock star, a renowned DJ, a fashion icon, an activist, a bloody legend. I grew up loving Skunk and Nancy and today I am so excited to talk to Skin. Skunk and Nancy had six enormously successful studio albums, played the greatest stages across the world and earned millions upon millions of fans, including the great David Bowie. Skin blazed the trail for women in rock and became the first black woman to headline the Pyramid stage at Glastonbury in 1999. She was awarded an OBE for services to music, became the first Chancellor of Leeds Arts University, was named by Sky Arts as one of the 50 most influential artists in the past 50 years and was awarded an Attitude Icon Award in 2022. I remember stealing a copy of my brother's Kerrang! to cut out a picture of her to put on my bedroom wall. (laughs) So you can imagine how excited I am for the conversation today. Hello, Skin. Hello, that's a, gosh, that's that's a very complimentary intro. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, and I will confess, I've got this first world problems. But I have like a roaring fire in the background. Hold on, I don't know, you won't be able to see it. Apparently, it sounded like there was a waterfall in the background. So hopefully, I didn't think this mic was going to be that good. That it was going to catch something over there. But apparently it has, so I apologise for that. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you. I was probably about 12 when you guys were at your peak. And it was an exciting time to be a girl that was into rock and to watch a woman rocking out. Yeah, it was. It, there was a few of us at the time, you know. There was Gwen Stefani, there was Shirley Manson to Justin Fishman. You know, the, everybody was, had their own little corner, but it wasn't such a weird thing. And, and I suppose in many ways we didn't have to be, you know, we weren't all kind of like on stage in like a bra and a panties, you know. We didn't have yeah. to be that sexual. We just like women that were rocking out. Yeah, I remember it feeling so exciting to me, me just jumping around in my bedroom being like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) just loving it. Now, quite often with this podcast, we sort of start chronologically. So I know that you grew up in Brixton. Yes. I read in an article that you said that you were, you sort of found yourself when you joined Skunk and Nancy and when you got into rock. So I'm sort of wondering, what were you like when you were 
a teenager, when I was getting into you, what kind of person were you in the world? What was Brixton like at that point? Yeah, Brixton, it was a bit like country in Western. There was like, you know, reggae, reggae and more reggae, you know, it's, <laughs> it's growing up in Nashville or something. I mean, I, I got into rock and indie music via Jamaican music because I was raised in a very rock steady kind of like a Prince Buster you know, type of music playing my granddad's nightclub. And so that for me was a bit of an arc because at a certain point in the seventies, all of a sudden you had these like blue beat type type of bands, like that were like, like Selector, Pauline Black, you know, that were playing like reggae, but fast kind of, kind of uh, ska reggae. Um, but in a different way. So that was what got me into it. Is that they had guitars in there. So I remember I went to London School of Furniture when I was 16. I just ran away from school and I went to do a diploma there. And I went there as like a Christian girl in like long dresses and kind of wavy, curly permed hair and very kind of, you know, neat and tidy and you know, a very religious kind of Christian girl. Two weeks later, I was just goth. <laughs> it's just like, I just went full straight punk goth. So two weeks later, I was like, cut off all my hair, short and spiky, big kind of creepers, massive baggy trousers, like tiny little tops. I used to go to Marks and Spencer and I would buy tops for three to four years old and these little tops in the children's section and I'd wear them and they'd be like midriffy on me, but I was so small that they looked quite cute. So I, I went from being, you know, a good little Christian girl to a crazy little, you know, art school girl within two weeks. I was like, yeah, finally. And that's really when I got more exposed to things that, I mean, my dad was into the Beatles and a few things like that, but I got more exposed to music that I liked, which was Scar and mm. Punk and then The Cure and television and all these bands, Sex Pistols, whatever. And then I discovered Led Zeppelin and it was all over after that. <laughs> really? So tell me about that. How did you discover them? Well, you know, in, in reggae music, you know, guitars are kind of like chick, chick, chink, 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 like, like that kind of no distortion, like keeping a rhythm. You know, there's not many solos in reggae music. And so all of a sudden you've got like Led Zeppelin with these big, huge, fat riffs slowed down. And I'd never heard anything like it. I was not exposed to that. In many ways, you know, I became more crazy about rock music because I I had to go find it and search it out. You know, a lot of rock stars are like, yeah, you know, my dad played me this when I was four seconds old or something. And I'm <laughs> like, no, I didn't grow up like that. I grew up in a completely different type of music and I had to go and search for music that I liked, that I could sing because I was not a reggae singer. So when I discovered like uh, The Cure and, and, and all those bands and indie music and then I just liked distortion and the guitars I like got heavier and heavier and heavier and then I discovered like 18 17 18 I discovered Led Zeppelin and the police before that because again police were based around reggae music so that was another it felt familiar but different mm -hmm. yeah and that just blew my mind and the way that he sang you know just really long laconic airy notes ah! and all this everything sounded like he was having loads of sex <laughs> you know, uh, and, I and that's was, exciting. And that's that's exciting. exciting to a teenager. And yeah, because I was like, "Ooh, sex! What's that?" <laughs> you know, I had not been exposed to anything like that. So I know that you said that you were sort of a very Christian girl, and I read that you grew up in a very strict, very Jamaican yes. household. Yes, that was, the, that was the quote that I saw. And so, were you sort of singing in church? Were you singing with your family? Was there 
did you know that you had this voice? Do you know, I knew that I could sing from school because my church just, I went to the Church of England school, St. Matthew's Church, and that was just, oh, da, 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 which I, <laughs> honestly, I grew up with it. I still quite like it. I like choral singing. And then we went to like what was called a clap hand church. But there was no choir. So oh. I must have been the only black church with no choir. So I, I didn't grow up with any kind of gospel music or anything like that, which I love gospel music now. Mm. Now I love those singers because a lot of blues and a lot of great singers come from that fantastic gospel tradition. I joined the choir at school and then I was running the choir. I was head, head um, choir girl or whatever. Um, and then when I went to secondary school, I, I, I played classical violin for seven years. But it was mainly from school that I started singing. I, I just, I, it was weird. I remember at six years old, my friends were singing and I remember thinking, oh, they're getting that note wrong and that note wrong. I just, I knew I was a singer at six years old. You I had just, an ear. I just hadn't tried it, but I, I had an ear, yeah. That's amazing. And so were you, you saying about playing classical violin, obviously the version of skin that we see on stage is like this sort of raw, rock, loud like so in the music and so sort of rebellious. But at school, were you? Was that not you? Were you sort of quite a good girl? Um, <laughs> it's interesting because I was. I had one friend that was like a head girl, who's still one of my best friends on the planet now, Cal Walker. And then I had another friend who was Mario Hope, who was basically the school bully. And I was, I would hang out with both of them simultaneously. I wouldn't bully anyone because I was not into that. I was always quite sensitive to other people, at, even at a young age. But, you know, she would get me in trouble and Cal would, I'd just study with Cal and do good stuff. At 13, I remember at the time you had to choose your subjects. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, it was dawn of realization that school was for my benefit. You know, I thought it was something I was told to do. And you, you don't realize until you're older that it's for you to get an education. And I suddenly realized that, hold on, if I don't study, I won't have any qualifications and I won't be able mm-hmm. to do anything. And I, I re- it, it, the, the sense of it was down to me. And I realized it was no one behind me. I mean, you know, my mom was just kind of on survival mode. She had four kids that were all very young and she was just trying to put food on the table. She didn't have time for homework or anything like that. It, it was survival. It was all about survival mode. And I suddenly realized, well, if I don't work, no one's going to push me to work. And then I'm going to be the mm-hmm. person that suffers. It was a very clear thought I had. And that's when I started working and I dropped the friend that was always getting me in trouble and hung out more with my friend Carol, who was this wonderful example. And her sister was amazing too. And they're both really interesting, brilliant, lovely, highly intelligent people. And that's the direction I went. And I realized if I don't study, I'm not going to get anywhere. And then after that, I, I started, I was a very good girl and I did, I did very well after that. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Tinder. You matched, chatted, vibe checked. Now it's time to meet IRL. So what's stopping you? Tinder is making dating safer and easier with their excellent safety features. Like Share My Date, the best way to let your friends know your plans. While Moonlight allows you to discreetly call emergency services. And Are You Sure will prompt people to think twice before sending a potentially harmful message. Explore all of the possibilities for yourself. It starts with a swipe. Download Tinder today. And I know you, you said you're about going to the London Furniture School, Furniture College. London, yeah, London School of Furniture. So is that where you thought your career was going into interior design? Yeah, um, yes and no. I, I kind of went in that direction of things that I liked and I was good at. So I was very good at English, English language and English literature. Um, and I was very good at the arts and design. And I was the first girl to go to, I had to go to the boys' school to do design technology. So I was the first girl in the region or something like that to do that. And then I came top of the class because there were boys. They were like, oh, yeah, design technology. We've been we've been hammering nails in things since, you know, we were 11 years old. And I was like, oh, look at this nail that I can hammer in. It was great. And I loved it. And I came top of the class. And that kind of put me in the direction of doing design and art. And I decided I wanted to be an interior designer and an architect or something like that. So I got my qualifications to do that. And then I found a course that did that because I remember going to my careers advisor um, and she said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I was really into photography. I studied, I, I took my own pictures. I had my own camera. I developed these film myself in the dark room at school. And I, but I said, I don't want to do that. I want to do, I want to make furniture and do interior design. And she was like, that's, you know, she's listening to me. It's the first time I expressed all of this stuff that I wanted to do because nobody else would listen. And I go, well, career's advice, she's going to listen. And uh, she listened to me for about 15 minutes and I showed all the courses and all this information I'd found. And I was, all my grades are really, really, I was top of class in all those subjects. And uh, she said, oh, that's good. And she, I remember her slowly moving the paper to the side and she pushed up in between it, this paper, it was an application for Woolworths, for full-time job at Woolworths in Brixton. <laughs> I remember looking at it in disbelief because I was already working at Woolworths in Brixton as a Saturday job. You know, I mean, I saw Woolworths in Brixton as like, yeah, that's what pays me on the Saturday so I can, you know, buy my own sweets and buy my mm. own travel pass and whatever. And I was like, this woman wants me to do that as a job. And I've just told, I remember being so gutted and disappointed. And then I, I turned it into, okay, well, I'm just going to do it myself. So I contacted the school and I made myself an appointment, an interview, and I went down there and I got it. Were you doing that alongside music or were you even, you weren't in, No. were you in bands then? No, no. Not at all? Not at all, no. I mean, that was 16 and then right. that's, that's when I went from a good Christian girl to like a goth. And then I became the school, <laughs> the school DJ because I, I was a collector of music. So I had the biggest record collection of anyone in the whole school. You know, I'd, buy, I'd go to this place in Red Records in Brixton and I would buy one record each week. 
<laughs> so that's so, what the war was money was going on yeah it was it, it was going on music and so I became a school DJ and originally I thought I could become a DJ that would be great you know mm. but I was always singing I was always writing songs and it wasn't until I went to uni that's when I got pestered into joining a band because that was just a much broader spectrum of people and so there were people there who mm-hmm. played music and were in bands and loved it and they they were always looking for a singer so I used to walk around with a headset a Sony Walkman <laughs> that I bought with my Woolworths money and I would would sing along I would just be singing 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 all the time just singing to whatever I was listening to whatever cassette tape or in those days I used to get like a record and I would put it next to the radio and record the top 40 on the radio mm-hmm. and I'd listen to that and then I'd sing along and then people just kept asking me to join bands and I did I, did, I said no for a year because I knew I was, I was, I was again the first black person to do that course ever in Teesside Polytechnic at the time. Now it's university, mm-hmm. and uh, and I knew I was there as an experiment because my teacher, my head of the course, he told me I was there as an experiment. So I was like, God, I better work. <laughs> oh wow, that's a lot of pressure to give a teenager. Yeah, but it was, you know. It was normal. Was it positive pressure? I made it into a positive. I knew what he meant mm-hmm. by I was an experiment because I'd never had a, a black girl uh, do that course before, a black person do that course before. But I was kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to show what I got then, you know? Because yeah. at that point, I got my job working as an interior designer assistant. I got myself onto an agency, blagged mm-hmm. my way there, and I, I was working as an interior design assistant. So by the time I went there, I'd already had three months experience working as an interior designer. So I literally just worked really hard and in that first year and I came top of class. And then the second year I joined the students union and I was entertainment officer and I did zero work and ended up bottom <laughs> of the class. But that's when I joined the band and I, you know, messed about and had fun, drank a lot. And how aware were you of your sexuality at that point? Well, it was interesting because I never heard the word gay or queer or anything like that till I was 15. Like, and I remember at the time, this is how naive I was, that it was still something in the Ten Commandments about thou shall not sleep with dogs or some beasts or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, well, that's bloody ridiculous. Who's going to fucking do that? Who's going to sleep with their dog? And then the next, there was something else about and, you know, you know, you shouldn't sleep with someone of the same sex or something like that. And I was like, oh, come on now. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> Honestly, dogs and then the same sex. I mean, come on. I remember thinking that how ridiculous it was. I literally did not know it existed until I went to college. And I realized that some people were, you know, what they call gay or queer, not so much queer. You know, they use the F word, you know. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was really, oh, I didn't know that was possible. And then I just kept fancying, I kept fancying girls at my, my college. And in my head, I was like, yeah, it's okay. It's just a phase. It's not reality. It's just silly. It's just a phase. And then I was at my university and I remember I was just like obsessed about this girl for like a year, just obsessed. She was in the rugby mm. club, so fucking hot. <laughs> and at the end of it, I remember thinking, that's a bit gay. 
maybe there's something else going on here because and then I remember back to when I was at college and I fancied all the girls there and I had this dawn of realization I think it was someone came and made a speech of oh that's it I was in the back of the car and two two, uh, lesbians in front of me two of my friends that were gay and they were talking about you know stuff and I remember thinking that's me that's also me and that's also me I remember, and I remember going home and thinking, I wonder if I'm gay. <laughs> that was the first thought I had at like, I must have been 20 years old. Sheltered. And were you frightened by it? Were you like, oh no? Um, I think at that point, no. Because at that point, you know, I was at uni and there were, it was much more of an open thing. You know, mm-hmm. there were people that were gay. I mean, people didn't say nice things about them. But I have friends that were, you know, that were were queer and they were nice people. So Mm. I didn't see that it was a problem. And one of my friends that I lived with in my house, I was certain was gay. And he's not actually, but he was a campus thing on two legs. And I was sure that he was gay and he was my friend. So I was aware and I was very much, I I, I turned into a political animal because I was part of the students' union and we were always defending all different types of people from the community so I was much more politically savvy by that point so I didn't think it was a bad thing at all I just it didn't occur to me that I was in that group I just thought I was defending that group and 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 one of the various groups that we politically as students were were concerned of the welfare you know we were concerned about the, the welfare of them mm. and so when I, I I suddenly and I remember the person who I thought was the gayest was the was the head of the students' union. Her name was Liz Daniels, really amazing person. And I, I just thought she was Butch Dyke. So I asked to speak to her and I just said, you know, I think I'm gay. And she looked at me dead in the eye. She goes, okay, come with me. And she took me down the road to a friend of hers called Avril and introduced me. So she thinks she's gay. And I was like, Liz, she goes, no, no, I'm not, I'm not gay. I've got a boyfriend. And I was like, really? Because <laughs> literally the, the gayest person, you know, it's like Elton John gay. It's like, you know, <laughs> the gayest person that you ever think, see in your life. And she wasn't gay at all. And the whole school thought she was gay as well. And she just was like, well, it's not an insult, whatever. Yeah. And that's when my gay life started. And I remember there was one gay club in Middlesbrough. And it was literally, you used to have to knock on a door and it would slide open and they'd take a look at you. If they didn't know you weren't getting in, but you had to be with someone. Mm. And they'd open the door quickly and you'd jump in quickly. Didn't hear any music, didn't know, nothing outside said gay club. And you went in and it was the seediest, dirtiest, raunchiest place I'd ever been to in my life. It's like all different kinds of people and no students, literally no students, all locals. I was the only student in there. And it was fantastic. And I met so many amazing people and that was my introduction to gayness and queerness. And then, then it's weird because I was a student, but then suddenly I was in the underbelly of, of Middlesbrough. I was in a completely different circle of friends. And it was pretty wild, yeah. Sounds fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you've heard the term lamb to slaughter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> and so, because I know that when you picked up your Attitude Icon Award, you talked about 
the fact that sort of how how much the queer community has has meant to you. Yeah, worst speech ever, by the way. I had it all written down, no. and then it was like, oh, it was. I didn't say anything I wanted to say there, but you know. Oh no, it was gorgeous. You mentioned your wife, and you talked about your baby, and it was lovely. You talked about the community. That's exactly what someone wants. Ugh, it was horrible. I had a really good speech planned and then and then I couldn't read it properly. So I just kind of blagged it, you know, and then I was like, oh, what's off stage thinking? Well, that didn't go down as I wanted to go, it to go down. I but, think you're um, being too hard on yourself. Nah, it's tra- it was crap. <laughs> but, but carry on, carry on. It's okay. But, no, but you mentioned <laughs> what the community has always meant to you. And you mentioned that you know, the, the family that you can create. Is that where that started in Middlesbrough? Absolutely, in- because that was where, you know, I think a lot of us feel the same way is that your family doesn't necessarily back you up. You know, I didn't have a family that backed me up. I didn't have a family I could be myself with. And that those people became my friends. And, and you know, it's I kind of lost touch with a lot of people from Middlesbrough. Um, but when I went back to London and created a new community, I actually ended up being, you'll be too young, but there was a club in Brixton called Venus Rising, which was the biggest club in Europe, biggest lesbian club in Europe. And mm-hmm. it was 2000, it. yeah, 2000, gave, and I was, I was 17 and I became security for that party. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just know how like skinny and the idea of you being security is just quite amusing to me because you're saying that you could like fit into like a three-year-old's top from MS and you're also being security. It, you know what happened? Uh, basically, I, the first I worked there, because um, I wanted, I, I, w- I was doing security at, I, I don't know why. I was always been offered security jobs. So I took them because it was money and I had none. Mm-hmm. So I was a security for the students' parties in, in Middlesbrough. And then I went to Bricks and I thought, okay, I'm going to do it at uh, Venus Rising because I know that they needed females to be security because Venus Rising didn't want a bunch of male, big, huge male guys at yeah, the front yeah. door. And I remember the first day I was there, it's like really butch woman comes up to me. She's like, yeah, so, you know, what do you, what do you, uh, you know, what do you, qualifications do you need to be security then, eh, 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 eh? And I just went, seven black belts. <laughs> like that, like really serious. And then that was it. I never got any trouble ever again. No, I bet. Yeah, that, I bet. they believed it, which is kind of crazy. I mean, I was 18 and how did I get some, you know, I think I just looked the part. I just looked, I was very skinny, but very muscular. I did a lot mm-hmm. of sports in those days. I played a lot of football, yeah. did a lot of sports. And uh, I looked quite fit. And I guess they thought she's taller than me. She might be able to do it. So, and then I never, I never, and then I was just always very charming. I would always tell people to do things with a smile. I was never confrontational. I was always kind of charmed people into not dancing naked on their speaker or whatever they were doing. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've read about... Um... I read about Venus Rising. It's a shame because it feels like there's not, I don't know how much those spaces, specifically lesbian ones, really exist now. I think there needs to be a documentary on that club. Oh, for sure. Because if you imagine the times, you know, it's not like it is now where sexuality and queerness is kind of accepted. In those days, Mm -hmm. it was, you know, people were just openly homophobic. It was just normal on TV, Mm -hmm. radio, film to just be openly homophobic. And then for it to be in Brixton, which is not the most queer friendly place in England, 2000 women once a month going crazy, doing whatever they want. It was so fun. 
it was just so mm. much fun. And I kind of went there and then after a while I was I found out that they were paying the female security half as much as the male security. So then I, I just left. I said, I'm not doing this. And so then I get to, I got to go, you know, <laughs> on my own with my friends and all the people I'd met there. So then that was a lot more fun. Better. Yeah, that was better. <laughs> so you talking about sort of how sort of openly homophobic people could be, like you're absolutely right on telly, you know, in comedy, mm. on the street. How was that? When Skunk and Nancy were at their sort of peak, were you talking about being gay? Was it something you chose to discuss, something you didn't choose to discuss? Basically, I, I, I worked just trial and error. So I was very, I would very happily talk about my sexuality. And then I realised that some of the people, some of the journalists just literally know fuck all about anything. So... They would just, you know, they would just want me to talk about girl on girl stuff or something like that to, for their oh. wet dreams or something. And so I just, after a while, I just thought, you know, I'm actually not going to talk about sexuality unless it's to a gay magazine or to a mm. gay person so I can be represented properly, you know, because I just had journalists after journalists, you know, some old white guy just kind of just getting off on the idea. Yeah, grim. And also not being able to, didn't understand it, you know, didn't understand it at all. And then I, I, I remember after a while, every single press piece started with um, six foot, uh, scary, bisexual, Amazonian lead singer of Skunk and Nancy. So I had all these adjectives before my name. Mm. I mean, I'm not six foot. I'm not, you know, I'm 5'8", so I'm sort of, I'm small, but I'm not six foot. Um, and they just described me in this very aggressive kind of ugly way. Everyone just would repeat it. And that's the way that they found that they were able to talk about me as a lead singer of a band. And so after a while, I was just kind of like, you know, I'm not going to talk about it to you. You know, I would just, mm. you know, if I had a journalist ask me a question about sexuality, I would just not answer it or talk about something else. Yeah. Because they didn't have the vocabulary to be able to really talk to me about it. Um, and they weren't talking about it in a very sympathetic way. It was, what's the word for it? It was more kind of... Um, like sexualizing it. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, sexualized. I mean, I'm a black woman who's gay, so there's a lot of sexualization that went on, generally speaking, anyway. Mm-hmm. What's the word I'm looking for? I can't really find it. When someone, when you, when someone's just being a voyeur, it, it was very voyeuristic, the way that we'd be taught, my sexuality right. would, be, would be talked about. And so I would just stopped doing it. Just didn't feel comfortable. Yeah, you don't owe anyone any yeah. anything you know you're talk, if you're talking there to talk about your music it's like well fuck you I don't want to answer your questions that you're going to get off yeah on. I don't have to answer anything that anybody ever asks me anywhere in mm. life in it's in an interview or in life you know in the back of a taxi or something I think yeah. that we have a lot more power and just because a man asks, asks us a question it doesn't mean that we have to you know favor them with an answer mm. did it feel like you were famous very quickly because I was reading up about sort of the origins of Skunk and Nancy and please correct me if I'm wrong but I read that you had your first live gig in 94 and then Kerrang Readers voted you the best new British band in 1995. Is that true that like in the space of a year? It was incredibly it, fast yes yeah. but, but you have to remember it's different times that means yeah, okay. something that means something very different here because in those days, we'd do a gig, you know, with the lead up to a gig, we, you know, we'd be in like Manchester and we're going to do a gig in 
Leeds the next day. So in Manchester, we'd do a gig. Everybody would go crazy, but we were already on the way to Leeds. So the success and the fame was always behind us. We had no idea how we were doing. We had no idea how successful we were doing. There was no way to measure or any kind of barometer. Uh, And it wasn't until we stopped for a minute when we were changing record labels in like 19, end of 1998 into 1999, I remember going back to London and I was recognized everywhere I went. And that was the first time I realized there was any kind of fame thing or that I was famous in any way. Because, you know, in those days, there is no, there was no instantaneous way of measuring your success. There was no social media, there was no internet. So you'd realize that you were being successful by number one, the amount of records that you were selling, yeah. that was that was one measure, and awards that you were being offered, and the magazine covers. And we weren't getting hardly any magazine covers apart from Kerrang! and Melody Maker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We weren't on magazine covers, but you could feel there was a buzz around us when you're doing a gig. Mm. And of course, in those days, you know, you you sold a bunch of records and three years later you get paid for them. So we right. were still really poor. So we're poor with no money going around the world with all the success and all the buzz, Anyone, everybody doing reviews in different languages behind us. We had literally no idea how well we were doing. And a lot of that time we were in America on tour in America. So we really had no idea what was happening and, and really until a good three years into it. And I remember this point where I realized that we were doing well was our, we were gonna do the third album. And so our manager said, so where do you wanna record the next album? And we were like, what do you mean, where? Because we well, <laughs> can record it wherever you like in the world. And we went, what, like Barbados for Joe? She goes, yeah, you can go there. We're like, huh? And then we realized that, oh, that means we must be doing all right if we can go to Barbados to make an album. Of course, we didn't do it because we wanted the gritty, smoky, dirty streets of London were much more mm-hmm. inspirational. But that was when we realized that, yeah, we can record an album anywhere we, where we want. And we decided we, we um, went to Bearsville in New York, in upstate New York, Woodstock. That's where we did the third album. Oh, cool. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. What was that like that when you said you three years later, you're like back in London and you're being recognised loads? Was it 
were you like, oh, fuck yeah, we're getting through? Yeah, it, it was kind of like well, we, we were getting all we ever wanted. We were being successful in a band. And we were from a circle yeah. of unsigned bands. And, you know, we'd all really, really struggled in the early days. So that was great. Mm. And then the rest of it, I had no idea how to deal with it. You know, it, there's no, you don't get any... Excuse me. You don't get any lessons on how to be successful. It's trial and error. So I remember that mm. I was I was seeing someone at the time, and she always used to get really mad at me because I'd be talking to her, and then someone would come right in the middle of the conversation and start talking to me and almost push her out of the way. And me being ultra polite, which is I'm a very polite person, I would just talk to that person because I thought it was rude. And and my my girlfriend would be like. You just let her just come, you know. So after a while, I learned to be like, oh, one second, I'm just in the middle of a conversation. And then I realized people got quite offended by that. And so then I would find ways to say a quick couple of sentences and then move back to the conversation. Mm. It's like a skill that you you probably have to done the same thing. It's a skill that you learn of how to, because people are excited. They're not, and they're being rude because they're they're excited. It's a positive thing. Yes. But they're actually also being really quite rude, not obnoxious, yes. but they don't really get it, you know? They don't get it, you know? Because today they've met Skin. Yeah. That's, that's what's happened in today their day. they've met Susie that's made their day, you know? <laughs> and they, they, it's kind of like everything blurs and all they can see is Susie must talk Susie now. <laughs> Um, and if they saw a video of themselves doing that, I think they'd be like, oh my God, what did I I'm do? I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed. Yeah. You learn after a while to kind of deal with people in a way that's respectful to them and also mm. respectful to who you're with. Sometimes people are just rude and I just, I'm just rude back because I'm a rock singer. I don't care. Mm. You know, I don't have to yeah, be nice. Yeah, right. I don't have to be nice. But if someone's rude to me, then I'll be like, I'm not having it. You know, I'm not having it at all. If they're just rude, rude. Um, mm. but if they're just, you know, being whatever, then I'm kind of like, oh, I'll, I'll always kind of find a way that they don't feel bad afterwards. <laughs> mm. <laughs> nobody, nice. nobody in the room feels bad, you know. Feels awkward, yeah. Yeah. That's nice. That's lovely. Now, obviously, you had such an incredible sort of live touring, I guess, schedule. I don't know if it's an incredible schedule, but you had such, you toured constantly. Yeah, yeah. And played incredible places you know obviously I mentioned uh, in the intro about you playing the pyramid stage at Glastonbury are there any moments from those years those sort of mid-90s into the late 90s early 2000s that you that were like moments that you thought oh my god this is like a pinch me moment oh my god so many I mean one of my favorite moments were David Bowie fell in love with us. And so we had a summer where we were always supporting David Bowie, you know, like at festivals, he'd be headlining, we'd be the band on just before him. Just so you know, I've got that written down because that was what I was going to ask you. I was so pleased you brought it up. <laughs> yeah. And I remember the, we were, there was this one thing where it's like, uh, you know, we'd, we'd do our gig and then we'd get ready really quick and run around the front of the stage so we could watch him do his gig, you know. And I remember there was this one minute moment where he segued a Bowie song into a Skunk and Nancy song. And I remember looking at my manager, who's like one of my great friends, and I was just like, is David Bowie, Bowie just playing fucking Skunk and Nancy? Is that? <laughs> and I was like this, going, what the fuck, what the fuck? And she's nudging me because he was like looking at me going, like this and I was like uh, I was like this like looking at my mate and she's like he's looking at you he's looking at you <laughs> and that was that was a bit of a pinch me moment because he's just one of those artists that I've just, just 
we just, you know, I don't know to, to, to explain how incredible mm. David Bowie is, but it was just a lovely kind of like, there's David Bowie, like got his band to rehearse a support band song and segue into one of his. And he's grinning like a Cheshire cat. And it was just a lovely moment. And that's such a testament to who he is of like, being like, I think my support act is brilliant. Like I've taken <laughs> this time to shout about how good they are. That's such a classy thing for someone to yeah. do to someone else in the industry. I find that the most successful stars and the biggest stars, especially stars that are in bands, are always the most humble. Like some of the biggest mm. stars in the world that you meet, then they're just normally super nice and super humble. And then you'll meet a pop star who's just, you know, you literally want to sick all over their shoes. They're so obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that you, I mean, it's the same in comedy, like when you meet like some of the people that are sort of the massive household names that everyone yeah. knows. There's a reason they're at the top because everyone loves working with them. They're confident and they make it nice. They make it nice for everyone yeah. in the room, you know, and that's... And, and they that's, trust in their talent. Yeah. So they're not intimidated exactly. by other people. And we, we learned so much from him, from Lemmy. Bono was another mm -hmm. one, you know, backstage yeah. in their dressing room, come and have drinks, you know, and it's kind of like you get the public persona of that person and then you get what they're really like when you're in the room with them. And most of the time, that's completely opposite. You know, they're, they're not yeah. what people think about like who they are at all. When we met uh, Nelson Mandela, it was the same thing. Just this lovely old geezer shakes your hand, <laughs> shakes your hand, and he just looks you right in the eye, and he's just lovely. And you just feel this warmth. And when you think about all the things that he'd been through, he didn't have to be a warm person. He could have yeah. all kinds of flaws because of what he's been through. And I'm sure he did have. But, you know, he just was just one of the warmest handshakes I've ever had mm. and little conversation. And um, really And you sang sweet. happy birthday to him? Yeah. Yeah, God, get With this. Stevie Wonder? I, yeah, I sang <laughs> happy birthday to Nelson Mandela. Um, and Stevie Wonder on, you know, piano, on you know, sure, keyboards, sure. you yeah, know. His thing, his thing. Nina Simone, first record I ever bought. Um, and Michael Jackson. And I sang lead and he sang harmony. He sang harmony to me. He's quite obnoxious though. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that adds up. That was, that was, Michael Jackson was the only poster I had on my wall that ever in my life was a picture of Michael Jackson when he was a kid. Uh, in mm -hmm. a Jackson Five, and I just one picture of him with a big afro. And then when you actually, when I actually met him, I think by that time, you know, he was just he was he was horrible. He's I did not. I just I fell out of love with Michael Jackson on that day. Does that mean you fell out of love with his music as well? Were you like, it's going off the playlist? Yeah, kind of. I mean, yeah. you cannot deny the music. The music is absolutely astonishing and always will be. And, you know, for Michael Jackson, comes a song that comes on that I like, I'll always be like, dun, 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 dun. I want to rock with you. I mean, there's such incredible songs, you know, Quint mm. that Quincy Jones produced, you know, um, that mm. era. So that you can't deny. You can't not shake your head to a Michael Jackson song in the right moment, you know, that's wedding or something. But... Mm. I've not really sat down to listen to a Michael Jackson album since, you know, I just mm. went off him. I saw how he behaved and what he did and whatever. And I was in front of my eyes, with my own eyes, by the way, not, yeah. not something I read or something I heard yeah. about hearsay. And I just completely went off him from that day. It happens. Yeah. And especially when you love someone, you're like, oh, that's disappointing. 
Yeah. You know, I was kind of already going off him and then I met him and I was just like, yeah. Oh yeah, that's done it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it now. You're in a garbage pail after that. Probably an amazing, incredible performer, but not a great person, I think, in the end. Mm. Yeah. Controversial, I know. Controversial. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who gives a fuck? Just tell them like it is. <laughs> I think so. No, I, I know that we've not got that much time left. And so I wanted to ask you about how you, I can't believe how long you've been around and how young you look. You, I know that you must get told that all of the time. <laughs> but you, mean, you, 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 you really were a trailblazer in a time when women weren't in rock. And I know, as you said before, women were coming through at the same time as you. But when I like listed off all of your achievements before... Do you feel like, do you have a sense of pride? And like when you got like the icon award, do you like being called an icon or is that like a a word that you take on or is it something that that makes you, I don't know, uncomfortable? You know, I've realised over the last recent kind of three years that if I don't shout about some of the achievements that Skunk and Nancy have done and we did all together as a band, no one's going to talk about you. And the way that racism works in many ways is that it, it makes people invisible. So, mm. for instance, the Stormzy thing, people kind of forgot that Skunk and Nancy headlined the pyramid stage because the press yeah. didn't talk about it and would never mention it. You know, in their list of the greatest performance of Glastonbury, we would never be in there, you know. And this is a way of, it's kind of, that's how people, they make you invisible, you know. Um, and this has happened so many times. So some, I feel, realized in the last kind of three years, four years that, you know, I've got, I've got to kind of, um, bang my own drum in some ways, you know, and big myself up a bit and stop being so humble and making myself so small, which is what us mm. lesbians and us black women do. You know, we kind of sit behind everybody else and make, help everybody else to be successful. We don't really blow our own trumpets in many ways. Mm. In that respect, I think that I've kind of made a point of saying, yeah, you know, we did that. We did that a long time ago. Um, yeah. Not just with that Glastonbury, but with lots of other things. For instance, at like the Mobos, I remember the artist that we were up for an award and the artist that won went on about um, how they were the first person, independent artist to be getting the top 20. And I'm like, yeah, we did that <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. But if you don't talk about things... You know, people just kind of forget, you know. I mean, I remember mm. when Beyonce said that she was the first black woman to headline Glastonbury or something like that or be on that pyramid stage. And I was like, what am I, Scotch mist, you know. And I didn't really say anything at the yeah. time. And then it happens again and then you're like, okay, I have something to say now, you know. And so there's, there's definitely a little bit of a sense of that you've kind of, as an artist, got to make it happen yourself. And no one's going to still, mm. at this point in our career, no one's going to hand anything to us on the plate. So I feel like now that, you know, if I don't claim my space, somebody else is going to stand in that space. So I definitely feel I've been claiming my space a bit more and I've been standing up for what we've done as a band and who I am as a person. Mm. Um, And it's made a lot of people in some ways realize like, oh, fuck, Skunk and Nancy did, Jesus. Wow, imagine being skin. Actually, Shirley Manson, I I, I have a podcast too, and Shirley Manson said that. The first thing she said when I interviewed her was like, do you know, back at the time, I can't do Scottish brogue, so I won't. But she was saying that (laughs) back in the day, I was, we were always pitted against you guys. 
I, I, I was astonished because garbage was much, you know, they did a bond tune. They were so much bigger than Skunk and Etsy. But this is what the press used to do. They used to pit her against me, but not to me, yeah. to her. And she goes, now I realise how much harder it was for you to do what you, do, you were doing. You know, and they was like concerned about, oh, this girl from Skunk and Etsy, why they was comparing us. And now I realised that how much harder it was for you to do your stuff. And it was really nice that she said that because I'm like, yeah, it was all, you'd see all these other bands come out that were nowhere near as good as us, not garbage because they're an incredible band. And they would get all the accolades and get all the attention and whatever. And here's here's Skanganazzi outselling them five to one, especially in Europe, and not getting any of that recognition because we had a lead singer, we have a lead singer that was difficult for them to relate to. And it was easier Mm. to ignore us than to try and make an effort to get to know us, you know? So in that way, that's, uh, I don't think that answers your question. So that's, that's how I feel about it. You know, I feel that, I don't feel big headed about it. I feel like um, it, we have to blow our own jump a bit more. Oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think it was very clear when you came onto the call today. Like, I think that, like, certainly for girls of my generation, all of my friends that I've, like, texted a bunch of stand-up comics that like the same kind of music as me. Like, I texted Josh Riddicum and was like, you won't believe who I've got on the podcast. <laughs> and he was like, fuck off, that's amazing. And, like, and I think it was such an important, exciting time. And certainly, like, my female friends that I told that I, that I was interviewing you were like, oh, I just wanted to be skin. <laughs> oh, fucking hell, I just wanted to jump around and be skin. And so you should be, you should be banging your drum. Because I think that, like, there's... There's so many of us that are like, yeah, you fucking bang it, babe. We'll do backup. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's weird because I'm, I'm not naturally someone who wants to be in a public eye until I walk on stage and then I turn into a fucking yeah. monster. But I'm, <laughs> I, I'm quite, you know, quietly, softly spoken and quite quiet, you know, backstage, you know, reading my newspaper or something like that. And then I mm. walk in on stage and transform. The backstage person is the person that needed to kind of get up, get out more. <laughs> yeah it's great now I'm, I'm going to ask you my final question I'll be very brief and it's a question that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast so maybe I'm thinking about uh, the version of you that was in the back of the car and there were the two gay girls in front and they were talking about being gay and you were like oh, that's me oh, that's me oh, that's me and uh, <laughs> if you could reach out to that version of yourself or indeed someone that's listening to this podcast right now that's having that moment if you could give them a bit of advice and put your arm around their shoulder what would you say? You know, I would say keep putting yourself in difficult situations and keep digging yourself out. It's scary. You know, it's scary to be you and to be the person that you want to be, that you see when you like dream, because I used to have these dreams of who I wanted mm. to be. But yeah, just keep putting yourself in difficult situations because it's going to be all right in the end. Perfect. This has been such a joy and such a privilege for me. Thank you so much for talking to me, Skin. Oh, my pleasure. It's been really fun. That was the incredible Skin from Skunk and Nancy. Go and listen to them. They're brilliant. I love it. I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. You can always get in touch. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. And if you want to come along to my tour, lots of it is already sold out, but there are some tickets left at a few venues around the country. So that's at susieruffle.com. Okay, I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.